Chapter 5 Prince Corin. My dear sister and very good lady, said King Edmund, you must now show your courage, for I tell you plainly, we are in no small danger. What is it, Edmund? asked the queen. It is this, said Edmund. I do not think we shall find it easy to leave Tashban. While the prince had hope that you would take him, we were honored guests. But by the lion's mane, I think that as soon as he has your flat denial, we shall be no better than prisoners. One of the dwarves gave a low whistle. I'm Katie, and this is Bethy. Welcome to For Narnia and For Aslan. Together, we're exploring the horse and his boy. And in chapter five, still mistaken for Prince Corin, Shasta eats plenty of good food while listening to the Narnian's council. They are discussing their plans to escape Tashben and they reveal some useful information about how to cross the desert. Shasta eventually falls asleep, but he's awakened by the arrival of the real Prince Corin, who shows him how to escape the house. Fun! Mm-hmm. But Katie, I have a bone to pick. All right, let's pick it. What do you think of the name Kalorman? Because I think it can be taken like the words color man put together. Oh, interesting. I always thought color like the Spanish for heat, but... Oh, that sounds way better. <laughs> it does sound better. I don't know if it's truer. <laughs> well, it makes sense because isn't it a pretty deserty area? They went over a lot of grass, but... They did. In general, when I picture Kalorman, I, I think picture of heat. desert. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure where it came from. And also, the intention isn't the whole point. I mean, the effect is also part of the point. Yeah, I don't know. It just kind of makes me uncomfy. Based on some of Lewis's other writings, I think there is good reason to suspect him of being insensitive, especially Pilgrim's Regress has a pretty awful metaphor throughout about skin color. Oh, really? I've never read that one. It's a great book, but that's a big bone. Yeah, You have totally. to eat around. So who knows? Well, just wanted to throw it out there. Bone to pick. So in this chapter, what made you laugh? Okay, yeah. So this was actually a pretty serious chapter about how Susan was going to be forced to be Rabadash's wife and mm -hmm. possibly even a slave if she won't accept him. So it's pretty serious until the very end when Prince Corin comes and he's awesome. He is so fun. I love Prince Corin. Yeah, he's super funny and he made me laugh for sure. He comes in with a black eye and a missing tooth <laughs> and he brags about being a good climber two times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> when asked what he's been up to, he says, a boy in the street made a beastly joke about Queen Susan, and so I knocked him down, and he ran howling to, into the house, and his big brother came out, and so I knocked him down. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, <laughs> and they call the watch, they knocked me down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he gets the watch drunk, runs away, finds the little boy who caused the problem in the first place, and knocked him down again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just think he's so funny and such a welcome joy in this chapter. Mm -hmm. I was grateful for his appearance. What was your first impression of Corin? I mean, just from this chapter, like you said, he's so fun. I just was impressed by how quickly Shasta and Corin trusted each other and found stuff in common. Mm. It says that they look just about exactly alike, which is kind of interesting. But they also, even though they grew up in these super different cultures, they get each other. Like, yes, you run around, you knock people down, you find your way back, you go on adventures, you keep each other's secrets. And it says by the end, they look at each other and suddenly found they were friends. 
Isn't that Without so ever, sweet? Without like, ever establishing anything. Yeah, it is so sweet. This is Shasta's first friend besides Bree, who's a horse. Whoa. Oh my gosh, I hadn't realized that. That's a huge deal. This is a big moment for him. Oh, and it's also not like a friendship based on perfection or like a misunderstanding of the other person just being like only awesome. Corn asks for a drink and Shasta's like, no, I drink it. Yeah, (laughs) right. Shasta makes it really clear he would have lied. And Corin right. says, well, I'm going to tell them the truth. Like, what else like, would I tell them? Yeah. They've been raised super differently and have different expectations of the world. And that's so great that somebody likes Shasta just how he is. You know, last chapter we talked about pride and shame and how Shasta feels not good enough and like he has to make himself seem good enough. And of course, that was his whole life with Archie. She just had to try and toe the line. But then with Bree, he kind of gets caught up in this adventure and tries to pretend he's part of it all a little more than he yet is. Mm-hmm. And definitely with Erebus, he feels out of his league in terms of being civilized and polite and cultured. And here's Corin, who's all those things. He's a prince, but he's also just like a kid like Shasta. And he likes Shasta just for being, I don't know, it doesn't even say why. They just are friends. It's really pure because of that. It makes you think about what friendship is. Like, do you have to have like certain things shared? Do you have to have these deep conversations? Like here, it's just, hey, we kind of see the world the same way. We're kind of trying to muddle through the same way. We just know how to make our way in the world. I don't know. They seem like a team. I think that is a good question. What does something require in order to be a friendship? For example, Mm -hmm. last night, Joshua and I were talking about someone who I called an acquaintance. Hmm. And he was like, no, in college, you called her an acquaintance. But in real life, that would have been a friendship. And that blew my mind. Our definition of friendship changes depending on the point in life that we're at. Hmm. What is required is different. Exactly. What do you think is required these days? I'm at a point in my life that I feel like... The main thing that a friendship requires is just time. Yeah. If we hang out enough, we're friends. Exactly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's pretty simple. I like that. I think that's real. I definitely have friends that I'm closer with because they're friends that I've that have been in my life longer and that I have deeper conversations with or maybe I have more in common. Hmm. But in general, if I'm spending time with you, I consider you a friend. And I think there was once a time in my life when there would have to be more. There would have hmm. to be a real deepness shared in our conversation or a lot in common and maybe that's because friendship was kind of in abundance in my life yeah there were just so many people like in college exactly but having moved and moved to a place where there are people who I have less in common with it feels like what's more important to me is quantity of time even more so than quality Mm -hmm. what about for you what makes a friendship I agree. I think it's people who you share your life with. Mm -hmm. I would say it feels a little bit different. Like I hang out with people from church in a church focused way. And it does feel like we're sharing our life together to an extent because we spend a lot of time in meetings together or whatever. But some of those I'm like, okay, it feels like we are getting to know each other in this setting, but I'd like to become friends by hanging out in a regular life setting. Mm. If that makes sense, it needs to be time of just hanging around or just enjoying life and not necessarily trying to accomplish some external task. Right. Like it has to be the normal stuff. 
mm-hmm. we made dinner together or we watched right. a movie mm-hmm. or we went on a walk or we just sat in the living room and chatted for three hours rather than we came at something with a goal and we accomplished mm-hmm. the goal. Although that can definitely lead to friendship. And it can grow already existing friendships. I would say that that's happened with us with this podcast. With this podcast. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but there has to be an element of normalcy. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. Like we sought each other out on purpose to some degree anyway. And I was my regular self with you. Mm-hmm. Not just a certain role. That makes sense. So for Shasta and Corin, they don't have a ton of time together. No, but they do immediately learn a lot about each other. They do. I think Lewis's definition of friendship is a little different than ours. There's some places where he says it's that moment when you realize that the other person cares about something you care about or sees the world the way you see it. And you say, what, you too? Mm. I thought I was the only one. And that was definitely his experience of friendship, at least certain key friendships. And I think that kind of happens here. Yes, I think that definitely happens here. And those are the friendships that I find are the ones that last Mm. and the ones that I call a close friend rather than just a friend. Yay, Shasta, friend. Yeah, that's so fun. It's really happy. There was that line last chapter about how the Narnians, you could just tell that they were ready to be friendly with anyone who was friendly and didn't give a fig for anyone who wasn't. And Shasta admired them and wanted to be friends with them, but he was in this position of having to lie to them and hide from them so he couldn't earn that kind of friendship. Mm-hmm. But now here he has a chance again with Corin because Corin's part of that same bunch but they're actually able to connect and just be friendly and give a fig for each other. True, but I would say that Corin doesn't necessarily fall into that description. You don't think so? No, because he does give a fig about someone who says something unkind about Queen Susan. Oh yeah, but I mean, he's not like trying to impress him or care about him because he's important or something. Oh yeah. Our sacred reading practice today is a medieval practice of reading scripture. So medieval readers didn't just look for one layer of meaning in a line from scripture. They looked at it in at least these four ways. So the first one we're going to do is the literal meaning, what happens in the passage we choose. And then the next is going to be typological, so looking for connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, if it was scripture. But we'll look for connections with the rest of the book and the series and with scripture if we can find them. And then the next level is the moral, tropological level. What do we do? How should we act based on this passage? And then the last level, anagogical. So what does this say about ultimate things? Salvation, heaven, hell, last days, the biggest picture. I like this practice because I feel like I don't do it in my own scripture reading. So it's fun to practice it with you so that I can learn how to apply it. Right. And it actually usually shows a whole bunch more than we would see otherwise. (laughs) So what we're going to do is choose a sentence. Bethy, would you flip through and stick your finger on a sentence without looking? Absolutely. Thanks. Oh, (laughs) I got, most likely he hopes to make one mouthful of Narnia and Arkenland both. What page is that on? 73. That's a great one. Okay, so here we go. The literal meaning. What is going on in that sentence? All right, so they're talking about how scary it is that Queen Susan could be forced to marry this Tarkan. Edmund says, well, unfortunately, he probably sees that we are a small land, and so he doesn't fear us, Mm -hmm. and he will attack us for this, and he'll probably attack Arkenland as well and try to knock us both out at the same time. 
Mm-hmm. It talks about how Kalorman is this huge land and how huge lands always try to gobble up the little lands at their borders. What I have in mind for this is Russia with like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. I'm guessing that's what Lewis has in mind too, actually. Yeah, it is interesting that he says, little lands on the borders of a great empire were always hateful to the lords of the great empire. He longs to blot them out, gobble them up. Okay, so that's our literal meaning in this passage here. But now let's try and do the typological reading. So with scripture, that's connecting the New Testament and the Old Testament together. Here, let's see what this has to do with the rest of the book, but even the series and with scripture. I just had come to mind Charn. That is a great land that ends up being the only land in the world until the world is destroyed. What came to mind for me were the Talmarines in Prince Mm. Caspian. You're right. They try to blot out the old Narnians. They're scared of them and feel like they have to be more powerful. And they're pretty successful for a while. Mm-hmm. Years. Centuries. The words of the sentence, most likely he hopes to make one mouthful of Narnia and Arkenland both. The image of that is like, you know, a wolf or something. Mm-hmm. But what it makes me think of in scripture is that psalm that says they devour my people as men eat bread. Wow. That's a really cool connection. And super scary. Yeah, not even stopping to think, definitely not worried about them or taking them seriously, just total power and total disregard for them as people. So the next level is the moral level, or called tropological, which is based on this passage, how should we act? Most likely, he hopes to make one mouthful of Narnia and Arkenland both. I think it's important for us to ask if this is happening today. Mm. And the context would be a small population on the borders of a great empire. Or, you know, it wouldn't have to be literally nation states, but something small that's hateful to the big thing. What comes to mind for me, just because it's what's happening in the world right now, Mm. is that the Taliban are taking over Mm. in Afghanistan. And not only are they taking the government, but they're also imposing terrible laws onto women. Making a mouthful. Right. They're doing it all at once. I also think of big, big companies that Mm. distract us with beautiful products or with ease of our lives so Mm -hmm. that we don't notice the bad things that they're doing, the slavery that they're imposing on their workers or the horrible things that they're doing to the environment. Mm -hmm. Or even just that are growing so, so big that they are the only thing there anymore. Mm. Yeah, that they create a monopoly. I could see this too. It's a bit more of a stretch, but like picture a classroom of kids and there's the one kid who's got some developmental differences or something different and the class just doesn't know how to cope with that and wants them to become normal or to be crushed, you know, totally. like we can't deal with this little irritation of difference that makes us question ourselves. We have to deal with them versus, you know, celebrating that the world is bigger than we thought. Wow. Yeah. That's so every day that we hardly even notice it. So our our moral level is don't make a mouthful of something that's human. Yeah. Notice Mm. each step. The next and last level is the anagogical level. This is the spiritual meaning. So what does this say about the biggest scale things? Cosmic war between heaven and hell or last days, the final victory of Jesus over sin, death and the devil. Prophecies about the end of time. Like what does this say? in that big spiritual level. Okay, well, in that situation, I think this makes the Tisrach a stand-in and a representative for the devil. Absolutely. Most likely, he hopes to make one mouthful of Narnia and Arkenland both, making a mouthful of the earth, rather than causing it to flourish 
loving it, caring for it, wants to devour it. The earth and the people. Mm-hmm. In one mouthful, both. Okay, and here, okay, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> There's this metaphor that I can't figure out where it came from. I feel like it's one of the church fathers, but I've looked for it for a while and I'm not, I can't find it. But it's this idea that Jesus becomes the worm on the hook, like so tempting and small, this little land, this little guy that the huge fish of death sees and can't withstand the temptation and bites him. He's hooked on the cross like a worm on a hook. But the devil bites him and has the hook in his mouth and is like a fish and gets caught. So it's like a trick that Jesus pulls on the devil. Oh, that's such a good metaphor. Isn't that cool? He's swimming along hoping to make one mouthful of the earth and humans both. And he takes that mouthful and from the inside, Christ, through the Father raising him by the Holy Spirit, guts him. Wow, it's so hopeful. So those who seek to devour my people as men eat bread will themselves be undone by what they swallow. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 3011. It's one of my all-time favorites. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Amen. I see why it's one of your favorites, <laughs> Bethy. Yes, it's very me. But the reason that it came to mind for this particular chapter is because of Mr. Tumnus. Oh, one of the best parts that we haven't talked about at all. Yeah. As a fawn, he is a dancer by mm -hmm. nature. And by nurture. I would argue that the same thing is for humans. <laughs> we see dance referenced at least three times, maybe four times in this chapter, all pertaining to Tumnus. Once while he's dining with the Grand Vizier, who said that he can be dancing again, always provided you leave us in exchange, a bride for our prince. Again, dance is mentioned, when Tumnus gets an idea and he's holding his horns and he's kind of writhing around as if he's in pain. Don't speak to me. Don't speak to me. I'm thinking. I'm thinking so that I can't breathe. <laughs> and then at the end when they've made their plan. And so to see, cried Tumnus, leaping up and beginning to dance. And Susan joins him. Wailing into dancing for sure. And finally, when Tumnus brings Shasta this giant tray of food, he's practically dancing as he carries it. And he tells Shasta, the thing that I'm most jealous of of all time, probably. <laughs> <laughs> he says, of course you remember you've promised to come for a whole week to stay with me for the summer festival. And there will be bonfires and all night dances of fawns and dryads in the heart of the woods. And who knows, we might see Aslan himself. Wow. Joy, joy, joy. All marked by dance. Yes, all marked by dance. And even as he's like kind of in pain, thinking, 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 scared, it comes out as dance. Mm. Yeah, the emotion internally and the circumstances become visible in his body, in his movement. And it's quite a threat that the vizier makes. You can dance there again if you leave a bride. Like this threat to impose, like to lock down his body. That's so scary. But wow, the moment that they've been all seeing no way out of their trap and then Tumnus sees the way out, that dance, mourning into dancing, wailing into dancing. That's exactly, exactly. right. <laughs> it's so cool. And he inspires me, honestly. Mm. He is so full bodied about the way that he thinks and the way that he projects everything in his life. Mm -hmm. And everyone takes it in stride. Nobody's off put or surprised. They even join him in it. I think that someone who is truly confident in what they love to do, whether that's dance or, I don't know, whitewater rafting mm. or singing, 
if they do that thing and they do it wholeheartedly with love, people can't help but join in. And it makes you realize, like, what if we all had the exact same passions like that? You mean for the same thing? Mm-hmm. I just think life would be incredibly boring. And back to the idea that you were sharing about a classroom where the annoyance of someone who's different right. causes pain and causes bullying. Mm. We need difference. It seems like loving something so different is the best kind of witness to that thing. And if somebody is different and is loving something different and wholeheartedly passionate about it, that's our opportunity to look at it ourselves. Dancing to the beat of a different drummer, as they say. <laughs> hmm. Which, of course, is another way of saying that God is inexhaustible and we can't think we've got it all figured out just with this set of people over here if even one is missing. When you brought up this passage for a scripture reading, I also thought about Shasta. It's not so clear in this passage. You turned my wailing into dancing, removed my sackcloth, and clothed me with joy. But that seems like the trajectory over the course of the book, that he's discovering joy and discovering dancing that he didn't know was an option for him before. That's so true. We get little hints of Shasta's past kind of thrown randomly into the story. Mm -hmm. And it's always really tragic. Yeah. No family that loves him, being hit upside the head all the time. He's never been able to trust an adult, mm. never seen a looking glass, <laughs> never had a meal nicely prepared for him like that, and a conversation during it. Mm. Comfortable bed. And here in this chapter, he gets his first friend. And that, to me, is being clothed with joy. It's not all at once, but it's like a layer. By the end of this, he's going to have just a whole wardrobe of joy. <laughs> mm. So Katie, do you have a workshop for us today? Yeah, and I don't really know where to head with this, but the circumstance in life that'd be nice to workshop is that I feel kind of torn in multiple directions right now in how I use my time. Those directions right now are being focused on my work and my ministry and my commitment to my town and what's happening here where I'm being a pastor, paying attention to the things I'm responsible for and not just doing the requirements, but paying attention and looking for how to serve and do new things. So that's one direction, but also paying attention to family. My sister's visiting me this week and that feels way more important personally at the moment or you know, doing a good job training my dog well, continuing to date the guy I'm dating and showing up for him as he often shows up for me. But that means, you know, driving half an hour to the place he lives. And it just feels like I can't give them all what they need. And it seems like it's my ministry and my work that often falls short. Hmm. So I don't know if this chapter has anything to say to that. It would be great if it did. Well, what comes to mind is this council that we see in the beginning of the chapter hmm. of all of these Narnians and Arkenlanders who come together and form a plan and that there is a correct time for the plan to begin. And I just wonder who in your life have you brought this question to? Honestly, this has been the question on my mind since I started this job over a year ago. And so I have talked about it with different pastor mentors, with our mentor from our monastic experience, with my dad who was a pastor, with other pastors in the presbytery. And they haven't given me like a clear, here's how it works. They have said grace for yourself because you're figuring this out. But, you know, some encouragement like, yes, these things are important. You need to be committed here. I've brought it up a little bit with the guy I'm dating, and so he knows, and we're trying to figure it out together, but we could probably talk about it again, because he has good ideas. 
Well, I don't know that I have any more wisdom to offer, except that I think that it's good that you've created this council around you. Yeah, and probably good to keep going back to them, even if I feel kind of embarrassed that I'm still in the same place as before. Definitely. It's a hard one, though. I think it's one that probably a lot of people struggle with. Mm-hmm. The balance of time and of priorities. Right. I've definitely struggled with it. Yeah, I kind of feel like Mr. Tumnus, like, dancing around with my hands on my horns, thinking so hard it hurts. <laughs> I hope that can be turned into dancing at some point. Hmm. But I think that you're taking the right steps asking people. Thanks. Thanks, said Shasta, who was already sitting on the sill. The two boys were looking into each other's faces and suddenly found that they were friends. Goodbye, said Corin, and good luck. I do hope you get safe away. Goodbye, said Shasta. I say, you have been having some adventures. Nothing to yours, said the prince. Now drop lightly, I say, he added as Shasta dropped. I hope we meet in Arkhamland. Go to my father, King Loon, and tell him you're a friend of mine. Look out, I hear someone coming. Well, friends, the hour has struck. We'll see you next week with Chapter 6 of The Horse and His Boy. I have to get out from under this blanket for a second. Okay. Oh my gosh. Wow. Oh, I forgot how hot it is there. Sorry, I feel like it didn't help actually at all with that. Well, it's kind of intractable maybe. <laughs>